0: Part 3, Chapter 5 of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part 3, Chapter 5 Naming the Baby. Wild horses shall not drag from me the wonderful secret that suggested my theme. Suffice it to say that it had to do with the naming of a baby and the naming of a baby is really one of the most momentous events upon which the sentinel stars look down. There is more in it than a cursory observer would suppose. Tennyson recognized this when his first son was born, the son who was destined to become the biographer of his distinguished sire, and the Governor-General of our Australian Commonwealth. Whilst reveling in the proud ecstasies of early fatherhood, he sought the companionship of his intimate friend, Henry Hallam, the historian. They were strolling together one day in a beautiful English churchyard. "'What name do you mean to give him?' asked Hallam. "'Well, we thought of calling him Hallam,' replied the poet. "'Oh, had you not better call him Alfred after yourself?' suggested the historian. "'I,' replied the naive bard. "'But what if he should turn out to be a fool?' "'Ah, there's the rub. "'It turned out all right as it happened. "'The boy was no fool, as the world very well knows. "'But if you examine the story under a microscope, "'you will discover that it is encrusted with a golden wealth of philosophy. "'For the point is that the baby's name sets before the baby "'a certain standard of achievement.' The baby's name commits the baby to something. Names, even in ordinary life of the home and the street, are infinitely more than mere tags attached to us for purposes of convenience and identification. In describing the striking experiences through which he passed on being made a freeman, Booker T. Washington, the slave who carved his way to statesmanship, tells us that his greatest difficulty lay in regard to a name. Slaves have no names. No authentic genealogy, no family history, no ancestral traditions. They have, therefore, nothing to live up to. Mr. Booker Washington himself invented his own name. More than once, he says, I tried to picture myself in the position of a boy or a man with an honored and distinguished ancestry. As it is, I have no idea who my grandmother was. The very fact that the white boy is conscious that if he fails he will disgrace the whole family record is of tremendous value in helping him to resist temptations. And the fact that the individual has behind him a proud family history serves as a stimulus to help him overcome obstacles when striving for success. every student of biography knows how frequently men have been restrained from doing evil or inspired to lofty achievement by the honor in which a cherished memory has compelled them to hold the names they are allowed to bear every schoolboy knows the story of the grecian coward whose name was alexander his cowardice seemed the more contemptible because of his distinguished name and his commander alexander the great ordered him either to change his name or to prove himself brave I notice that the American people have lately been rudely awakened to a recognition of the fact that a nation that can boast of a splendid galaxy of illustrious names stands involved not only in a great and priceless heritage, but also in a weighty national responsibility. Three citizens of the United States, bearing three of the most distinguished names in American history, have recently figured with painful prominence before the criminal courts of that country. It is not rarely, as a leading American journal remarks, quote, that a man who has acquired credit and reputation ruins his own good name by some act of fraud or passion. It is much rarer that the case appears of one who soils the good name of a distinguished father. But it is without parallel that three names born by men the most famous in our annals should all have been so foully soiled by their sons, end quote. And the pitiable element in the case is not relieved by the circumstance that these unhappy men have clearly inherited, with their father's names, something of their father's genius. The fact is that American soil has proved singularly congenial to the growth of greatness. The length of America's scroll of fame is altogether out of proportion to the brevity of her history. The stirring epochs of her short career have developed a phenomenal wealth of leaders in all the arts and crafts of national life in statesmanship, in arms, in letters, and in inventive science, she can produce a record of which many nations, very much older, might be pardonably proud. And she therefore displays a perfectly natural and honourable solicitude, when she looks with serious concern on the untoward happenings that have recently smudged some of those fair names which she so justly regards as the shining hoard and cherished legacy which have been bequeathed to her by a singularly eventful past. "'Names!' exclaims Carlyle's Tufelstrach. Quote, Could I unfold the influence of names, I were a second greater Trismegistus. End quote. Names occupy a place in literature peculiarly their own. From Homer downwards, all great writers have recognized their magical value. The most superficial readers of the Iliad and the Odyssey must have noticed how liberally every page is sprinkled with capital letters. The name of a god or of a hero blazes like an oriflamme in almost every line and Macaulay, in accounting for the peculiar charm of milton says that none of his poems are more generally known or more frequently repeated than those that are little more than muster-rolls of names they are not always more appropriate he says or more melodious than other names but they are charmed names every one of them is the first link in a long chain of associated ideas like the dwelling-place of our infancy revisited in manhood like the song of our country heard in a strange land these names produce upon us an effect wholly independent of their intrinsic value one transports us back to a remote period of history another places us before the novel scenes and manners of a distant region a third evokes all the dear classical recollections of childhood the schoolroom the dog-eared virgil the holiday and the prize a fourth brings before us the splendid phantoms of chivalrous romance the trophied lists the embroidered housings the quaint devices the haunted forests the enchanted gardens the achievements of enamoured knights and the smiles of rescued princesses." End quote. To tell the whole truth, I rather suspect that Macaulay appreciated this subtle art so highly in Milton, because he himself had mastered the trick so thoroughly. He knew what magic slumbered in that wondrous wand. His own dexterity in conjuring with heroic names is at least as marvellous as Milton's. In his Victorian Age in Literature, Mr. G. K. Chesterton says that Macaulay felt and used names like trumpets. Quote, the reader's greatest joy is in the writer's own joy he says when he can let his last phrase fall like a hammer on some resounding names such as hildebrand or charlemagne the eagles of rome or the pillars of hercules as with sir walter scott some of the best things in his prose and poetry are the surnames that he did not make this is exactly where Macaulay is great he is almost homeric the whole triumph turns upon mere names End quote. We have all wondered at the uncanny ingenuity that Bunyan and Dickens displayed in the manufacture of names to suit their droll and striking characters, but we are compelled to confess that Homer and Milton and Macaulay reveal a still higher phase of genius, for they succeed in marshalling with rhythmic and dramatic effect the actual names that living men have borne, and in weaving those names into glorious pageants of extraordinary impressiveness and splendor. It is very odd the way in which history and prophecy meet and mingle in the naming of the baby." a friend of mine has just named his child after john wesley he has clearly done so in the fond hope that the august virtues of the great methodist may be duplicated and revived in a generation that is coming it is an ingenious device for transferring the moral excellences of the remote past to the dim and distant regions of an unborn future the phenomenon sometimes becomes positively pathetic i remember reading in the stirring annals of the melanesian mission of a native boy whom bishop john selwyn had in training at norfolk island He had been brought from one of the most barbarous of the South Sea peoples, and did not promise particularly well. One day Bishop Selwyn had occasion to rebuke him for his stubborn and refractory behaviour. The boy instantly flew into a passion and struck the bishop a cruel blow in the face. It was an unheard of incident, and all who saw it stood aghast. The bishop said nothing, but turned and walked quietly away. The conduct of the lad continued to be most recalcitrant, and he was at last returned to his own island as incorrigible. There he soon relapsed into all the debasements of a savage and cannibal people. Many years afterwards, a missionary on that island was summoned post-haste to visit a sick man. It proved to be Dr. Selwyn's old student. He was dying and desired a Christian baptism. The missionary asked him by what name he would like to be known. "'Call me John Selwyn,' the dying man replied, "'because he taught me what Christ was like the day when I struck him.'" We have a wonderful way of associating certain qualities with certain names the name becomes fragrant not as the rose is fragrant but as the clay is fragrant that is long lain with the rose i see that two european newspapers have recently taken a vote as to the most popular name for a boy and the most popular name for a girl and in the result the names of john and mary hopelessly outdistanced all competitors but why there is nothing in the name of john or in that of mary to account for such general attachment some names like lily or rose or violet suggest beautiful images and are loved on that account but the name of John and the name of Mary suggest nothing but the memory of certain wares. How, then, are we to account for it? The riddle is easily read. Long, long ago, on a green hill far away, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when Mary left that awful and tragic scene, she left it as Jesus himself desired she should leave it, leaning on the arm of John. And because these two were first in the human love of Jesus, their names have occupied a place of special fondness in the hearts of all men ever since. Like the fly held in amber, the memory of great and sterling qualities is encased and perpetuated in the very names we bear. I like to dwell on the memorable scene that took place at the burial of Longfellow. A notable company gathered at the poet's funeral, and among them Emerson came up from Concord. His brilliant and majestic powers were in ruins. He stood for a long, long time looking down into the quiet dead face of Longfellow, but said nothing. At last he turned sadly away, and as he did so he remarked to those who stood reverently by, THE GENTLEMAN WE ARE burying TODAY WAS A SWEET AND BEAUTIFUL SOUL, BUT I FORGET HIS NAME. YES, THAT IS THE BEAUTY OF IT ALL. THE NAME PERPETUATES AND CELEBRATES THE MEMORY OF THE GOODNESS, BUT THE MEMORY OF THE GOODNESS LINGERS AFTER THE MEMORY OF THE NAME IS LOST. I SHALL ENJOY THE FRAGRANCE OF THE ROSES OVER MY LATTICE WHEN I CAN NO LONGER RECALL THE NAMES BY WHICH THEY ARE DISTINGUISHED. Mrs. Booth used to love to tell a beautiful story of a man whose saintly life left its permanent and gracious impress upon her town. He seemed to grow in grace and charm and in all nobleness with every day he lived. At the last he could speak of nothing but the glories of his Saviour, and his face was radiant with awe and affection whenever he mentioned that holy name. It chanced that, as he was dying, a document was discovered that imperatively required his signature. He held the pen for one brief moment, wrote and fell back upon the pillows, dead. And on the paper he had written not his own name, but the name that is above every name. Within sight of the things within the veil, that seemed to be the only name that mattered. End of part three, chapter five.